Whether it's building the bomb or sinking some hoops, the idealism of youth is the subject of Steve James' two documentaries, A Compassionate Spy and Hoop Dreams, both of which we'll be talking about this week on Overdue Rentals. Welcome back, everybody, to Overdue Rentals, the show where we talk about films that, for whatever reason, don't get the notice they once did. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blends Mike Reyes. And this week, Matt and I are going to trade secrets with each other. But we're also going to play some hoops, because as we promised in the beginning, we have director Steve James talking with us not only about his new film, A Compassionate Spy, which, if you've seen a little indie picture called Oppenheimer, you should definitely check out. Uh, but also we're going to be talking about his legendary documentary, Hoop Dreams. Yeah, I mean, Hoop Dreams, look, I don't want to all of a sudden stop talking about Compassion Spy already, because as, as you said, look, for people who go see Oppenheimer, and then they it's see Hoop phenomenal. Dreams, phenomenal. Then they see Compassion Spy, excuse me. They're like, like Mike says to Steve, as you'll hear very shortly, you know, we both, we, we get the invite. We see that there's a movie called The Compassionate Spy. We see it's made by Steve James, but I didn't really look at what it's about. I go see Oppenheimer. I come back because I go, oh, now I got to watch this movie though to compare for this. And all of a sudden they're intertwined. I I love when it just fortuitously happens like that. When it's just serendipity, it's not planning it. It's just, it landed at the right time. And we're like, oh, wow, no, this is great. It's like, and then you feel like you've got so much background because of that other film that they're great companions it, it we'll we'll obviously get to gush about this and more later but also hoop dreams and just very quickly before we go in yeah this is this was my first experience with hoop dreams what was your first experience with hoop dreams oh so this is your first time seeing it yes had you heard about it before though i'd heard about it but i had not really watched it all right well i'll get i'll definitely get we'll get into it a little more later because we don't want to hold steve out uh of the store a little any longer but much like everybody at the time, like it, it caused a splash. And this is like, you know, again, as, as you'll hear, so as we talk to Steve, you know, it, it made waves where documentary usually don't make waves, including where I'm pretty sure it was Ebert's number one film of the year uh, for the year it was released. He, he was definitely know, a huge booster for this yeah, movie. This three hour documentary. Yeah, this three hour documentary was his, you know, that was the number one film that you should have seen that year. And I'm not just saying, Ebert's the one to go by. It was a, everybody was talking about this thing. So, uh, I mean, I didn't see it until it came out on home video and rented it from Blockbuster, but I, I saw when it when it when it first came out at that point. Yeah. Well, without any further ado, I believe we should open the door and let Steve James return his rentals, grab some new rentals, and maybe some of that candy that we promised we just restocked at the counter. Steve, again, hi. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Glad to be here. Uh <laughs> no re no rentals out currently but um <laughs> well you know it's good you know it's good that you don't have any um any late fees due at this point i guess most of us don't i guess but <laughs> yes i guess not i mean there's always the library yeah true. So. which are very forgiving on their overdue rental fees versus what yes. you used to have to deal with exactly i used to i used to have a lot of overdue rentals <laughs> no more <laughs> Any particular that you remember very fondly? Uh, no, I just, I can't remember the name. There, I had a, I feel like I had a, a Russian film from Netflix or something for about a year and a half that I never got around to watching. Oh, I, I, I had like old, I mean, <laughs> granted, 
I know they're getting rid of it apparently soon, but like years and years ago, I had Netflix things in my apartment for like two years that I just never sent back. And it was like, yeah. one was definitely 2034. And I don't remember what the other ones were. <laughs> I still have a copy of the Ipcris file that I, I think I've had it for over a year. And then uh, the empty man. Yeah. All right. That's sort of new, but more, on to more important things. And <laughs> now to, to not to take away, of course, because I, let's get the obvious out of the way, I guess, which is, yeah. is there a positive to this film coming out so close to the release of Oppenheimer because people's minds are fresh on it and it, it kind of makes them inter more interested, or is it somewhat of a deterrence because they're not paying enough attention to the subject of your film because they're trying to connect it to Hollywood somehow. Yeah, well, that's the $64,000 question. Um, you know, I think Magnolia, our distributor decided that hopefully it's the former. Um, and I do too. And I, and I, and I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic because I I've seen Oppenheimer. I enjoyed it a lot, but I think, uh, you know, I, I went to see it with some friends and my wife and, um, they had not seen my film. And when they came out, they had so many questions that they had from watching Oppenheimer. And a lot of them were like, well, you should see my film. Well, you should see my film, you know? So I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that there are a lot of people for whom Oppenheimer will just really stimulate a lot more interest to want to know even more. Um, or people will be like three hours of of that was enough for me um let, let's go see mission impossible or barbie or whatever um that's gonna you know that could happen too but i i i think it's mostly a really a positive thing because i think they make good companion pieces his being the kind of small budget you know little film that you know a guy like him would make and my huge <laughs> budget you know monster of a film but i guess it also does help that Unless I missed it somewhere, you know, there was no official mention of Ted in Oppenheimer. So it's 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 a full no. thing that people can get into on their own. Absolutely. No, they Carl Fuchs gets brief yeah. mention, and he's so brief that they have to flash back to him when they when they reveal that he was the spy. So um yeah, if you if you want it, you know, what's interesting, what was interesting to me about watching Oppenheimer and thinking about my film, a couple of things. One is is that Ted did Ted did what they what people feared Oppenheimer did, right? After the war, they thought he had become the spy that helped the Soviets get the bomb early, and because of his left leanings and and um, and all of that. And of course, it wasn't true. Uh, it was true of Ted, and Ted did it when he was 19 years old. In many ways, Ted Ted was the far was far less naive and far more insightful about what the post-war world had to offer than Oppenheimer. It wasn't for Oppenheimer, it wasn't until after all of this had happened that it really seemingly began to dawn on him the magnitude of what he had been a part of. And Ted kind of got that before they'd even set the Trinity blast off. And it and it motivated him to do what he did. We even see that in early in the story of Ted and his wife with their relationship when he's telling her, look, he, he lays Los Alamos right on the, the table there instead of sort of playing the party line, so to speak, and just keeping it hush hush. Yeah. And that just really fit to his character. And to your point, I also agree that 
this is a great companion because I'm currently working through American Prometheus, reading it, and mm -hmm. then just I this the Nolan movie sparked a big interest, and yeah. just watching this right after, no, I I honestly we try not to look up too much about movies that we're watching on here so that way we can just be blown yeah. away by them and just go in with as fresh a mind as possible right from the beginning when it was all connecting to this i was like oh oh i'm glad this exists because this is just i'm the type of person that goes and seeks that out when i get really interested in some sort of historical story that's great that's great great to hear well i hope i hope i hope it'll be true for many others definitely i well i mean agreeing very much here yeah. Well, where did where did Ted's story though come into your zeitgeist? Because I mean, there's the bombshell book from what the late '90s, I guess. Yeah. Was it was this was this a story? Was this a story that you always wanted to tell, or is it something came kind of in your purview at this point, saying, "Well, ooh, this is what this is kind of something I'm interested in." Maybe not necessarily just because this is such an intriguing story, but maybe your view of your view still of what Ted did is kind of on some moral, you know, equator where you don't know which side you're falling on. Right. Yeah. No, I didn't know anything about Ted Hall until uh, Dave Lindorf, who became one of our producers, told me about him. I had interviewed Dave for the film Abacus because he's an investigative reporter. And um, and so he was part of that film. And he, had, he wrote an article in Counterpunch uh, magazine, a very left periodical, about Ted that got the attention of Joan Hall, Ted's widow wife. And she was very moved by the article and reached out to, to um, Dave. And Dave, in meeting her, said, I, I think there's a film here. So he reached out to the only filmmaker he knew. Thank God it was just me. <laughs> and uh, he didn't reach out to Christopher Nolan, okay? And, he, and, and you know, learning about Ted and then reading Bombshell, I was very intrigued with the idea of at least going to Cambridge, England and meeting his widow, meeting Joan and sort of seeing if there might be a film there. And I came back convinced there was, convinced because she was so extraordinary um, and an amazing storyteller and, and, and so committed to him and had played such a vital role in his life. And also because she had in her possession these archival interviews that had been done with Ted before he died 20 some years earlier. And so I realized like they can both tell this story. And I really did see it as both their stories. I'm, I, I think uh, I, for a long time, this film was gonna be called Ted and Joan mm. uh, because I thought of it as this kind of in incredible love story that also happens in the world of espionage and geopolitics. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, I, I was utterly fascinated. But no, I wasn't setting out to do a film about nuclear. You know, I remember thinking when we were getting underway, it's like no one's even talking about nuclear bombs anymore. I mean, it's it's not in the public zeitgeist at all. You know, everything is about climate change. You know, like that's how we're going to destroy ourselves. You know, we were going to destroy ourselves with nuclear weapons years ago. Now it's going to be climate change. And I just remember thinking, I don't know if anybody will be interested in this story, honestly, but I'm interested. And I just think it's an important piece of history that needs to be understood. And, and then Christopher Nolan got wind of what we were doing. <laughs> and he went and got American Prometheus and made his film. And, you know, we have a lawsuit pending against him. So 
I hope you looped in Robert Pattinson too, because that was who yeah, gave it's his fault. <laughs> so that, and then Jim Carrey for for not getting to do the the Howard Hughes biopic with him. That I mean, we'll help you here. We'll help you go to the mats here, because I mean, nuclear weapons were were outlawed. Why are we talking about? Oh wait, nobody signed that. Oh, yeah, exactly. that's why. Yeah, I mean that that threat has been here forever, and even though it's receded in the public consciousness back now, partly due to Putin, partly due to Oppenheimer. Um, and partly, I think, due to the fact that China is now ramping up to become a major nuclear power, which is scary. <clears throat> so we, we have not escaped that at all. We've just ignored it. And I think to the degree that any of these films, all of these films can can put that back on the radar, I think that's a good thing. Well, it's also such a strange thing because, again, you know, I, I don't think a compassionate spy is a film meant for you to go and sit and now everybody argue whether they thought again ted was right or wrong and doing what he did and how he did it, whatever it may be but this this is a big situation of hindsight is 2020 and those things that are cropping up now and the way they're cropping up you know really changed the way that people may have saw everything from the point where he was coming from then to where we are now yeah yeah i mean i think you know ted you could you can attribute it to you know the impetuousness of youth or whatever that he did what he did but you know i think the film goes to some lengths to show that the thing that he feared the thing that prompted him to act was not some crazy misguided notion of the way the world works at all um, so whether you agree with him, and obviously the film is sympathetic to Ted, but it, I, I like to think the film gives you room for you as a viewer to decide, you may decide, you may decide kind of like Borea, Savvy's son, that he was naive, that they were both really naive and that what they did, they shouldn't have done. And I want that viewpoint in there, despite, you know, what I think the film's viewpoint is, which is, is that Ted Hall acted on genuine conviction and he acted on some pretty incredible insight that he managed to come to about the way the world works when he was only 19 years old yeah yeah i mean it's a total switch up from what oppenheimer and what the story of Klaus fuchs uh tells us where you know it's it, it's not just spying for the other side it's he was doing it he's basically a whistleblower like whistleblowers yeah. really weren't as prominent as they are now. And obviously by this point, we've had Edward Snowden. We've had so many other people that are just favorably looked upon for doing what Ted did. Exactly. I think the uh, Snowden uh, is a great um, parallel because, you know, Snowden was a guy that um, when he went to work at the NSA, he went to work at the NSA because he wasn't, physically fit enough to be a Marine. He wanted to be a Marine. And of course, when you look at Edward Snowden, you'd be like, well, dude, no, there was no way you were going to be a Marine. But that's how much of a true believer, though, he was, that he went to work for the NSA, not just because it was a good job that he could get paid some decent money, but because he was a true believer. And then when he got there and he realized what they were up to, it changed him. It changed him to the point that he put it all at risk to do what he did. And there are a lot of people that look at Edward Snowden and say, he's a traitor. And, you know, 
look at him. He's stuck in the Soviet Union now for the rest of his life, good riddance. And there are other people that look at what he did and say, what a brave and courageous act, you know. Yeah, I think this, that's this, true that. There's a lot of things that, you know, I don't, my, I'm sure you as well, and that we both like to say about it, but I think we'd end up in a, a three-hour conversation about politics at that point. So mm -hmm. th we would like to say, though, because here at Overdue Rentals, we also do like talking about films that we feel, look, when Hope Dreams came out, that thing was a phenomenon. That thing hit the ground and it smacked people in the faces. And they, I don't think they were expecting it. And while it's still an important piece of work, people, I think there's a large swath of people today who I still haven't seen it. And so I would like to, if we could talk a little quick, a few, few minutes about Hoop Dreams, because were, were you, were you prepared for it to be as big as it became? No, 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 not at all. No, our, our fear as we were finishing it was we knew it was going to be on public television. We didn't, you know, we didn't have any expectation that it would be in, in movie theaters because it was three hours long and it was originated on video. And this was, this was at a time when the only documentaries that found their way into theaters at all were usually like one a year and they were all on film. They weren't on video. So we had no expectations. Now, our biggest fear with Hoop Dreams as we were finishing it was that PBS would stick it on at 11 o'clock at night because they wouldn't know what to do with it because it doesn't fit anything. And that would be that and no one would see it. And that would be at the end of it. That That's really what we thought. Um, it started to change when it got into Sundance um, that, oh, well, maybe it can have a, a, a life of some kind but even then could not have in in, a, in any way anticipated what became of it and and to this day that it still lives on and that you know younger film goers and younger basketball players watch it um you know and that i wouldn't have anticipated even with all the success of it back then that mm. that we'd still be talking about it at all you know <laughs> nearly 30 years later. Are there any players in particular that you were kind of blown away that actually responded to the movie? Well, um, apparently, and I haven't watched it, but apparently Chris Bosch, when he was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, um, mentioned Hoop Dreams. Now, I have not watched the speech. I, I should, but I haven't. But I, I understand that he <clears throat> and and my understanding, I mean, I haven't had conversations directly with these basketball players, but I understand a ton of them have. And, and William and Arthur will tell you that they have had these conversations <clears throat> with a lot of, you know, great basketball players over the years that have told them like, oh, my God, Hoop Dreams was so important to them. Um, and that makes, you know, that that makes them feel great. It makes me feel great, too, but it makes them feel particularly great you know, because neither of them made it to the pros, but to know that they had such a profound influence on some of the guys who did is is really meaningful. Yeah, not to pull like a strange out of the hat comparison, but I almost feel that somehow Hoop Dreams is the basketball players is to what like Full Metal Jacket is to like Marines. Yeah. You know, like it's like it's like a, a point of entrance where if you haven't watched it, you don't belong here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I got to work with R. Lee Army. Uh, I I did this film Prefontaine many years ago, and yeah. he played he played Bill Bowerman. And and when we went to uh, Sundance with that film, and R. R. Lee Army went to uh, 
went to Sundance, he was followed around by a whole group of guys who just quoted back to him his lines from Full Metal Jacket. So well, he must have had fun with that. Oh, he 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 ate it up. He loved it. <laughs> and what a great guy. What a great guy. Oh yeah, it's like you you just take, you know, a, a sidetrack and I, I know, but you just oh. take like Gunnery Sergeant Hartman and then you look at how relaxed Arlie was in life and it's like, it's almost like that, that that wonderful dissonance that like you can accept it because you want him to be that cool, especially after watching him blow everyone away with that movie. Yeah, well, and I remember, yeah, I mean, I remember seeing Full Metal Jacket. I've always been a big Kubrick fan. So I remember seeing Full Metal Jacket in the theater when it came out. And I and I remember turning to my my wife and saying, that guy playing the drill sergeant, he's real. There's no way he's an actor. There's no way he's an actor. Because uh, he was that good. I'm not saying an actor couldn't have pulled it off, but you know, and uh, and it really was the launch of his acting career, which is great. And he was he was a wonderful. He I think so many people get so either caught up in Full Metal Jacket or caught up in like the the more sillier things he may have done later on. But like he's got a lot of those great roles. He's a he was a great actor. Yeah, he he was good in in my film. I thought, yeah, and it, it was great fun to work with. So when it, when it comes to Hoop Dreams, though, was that like even though early on it it is all about William and, and Arthur. Was it a point where like you first went into it, like this is going to be a film about the recruiters, and then you realize you had the story about the kids, and then as it, you know, you weren't planning to follow them that long, and then as it went along, he's like, well, we have to keep following them. We still have the story to tell, so on and so forth. Or was it was always just like we're going to go until we go, and that's it? No, I mean the initial idea, which was um, a much less ambitious one, <clears throat> was to do a film about a playground in Chicago. Uh, where there were young dreamers like, you know, Arthur William, where there were um, guys who had who had pursued the dream and it hadn't worked out, maybe like William's brother Curtis in in Hoop Dreams, and where there were, you know, off of, ideally off of that playground, there were some some NBA players who had who had come from there, so their legend lived on in that playground, you know, like a like an Isaiah Thomas, so. That was the initial idea, but then once we met Big Earl Smith, this recruiter <clears throat> and insurance agent, and he led us to Arthur, and then that led us out to St. Joe's for that camp, um, it just changed the the concept, and 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 then it became, gee, it would it would be great to kind of follow these kids leaving the playground, as it were to really pursue their dream instead of just doing a film about the playground itself. Um, but we had no idea how much we would film. We had no idea how long we would film. We had no idea how frequently we'd film because we had no money. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it grew exponentially over time as we got more and more obsessed and got a little bit of money to defray the costs. We, it just grew exponentially until we shot for nearly five years. So. It was, it's the insane thing because as you're as we were all talking about it, like we you know nobody knew how big it was going to get and it was shown in theaters and so long but like again like any to me like doesn't it's not a mark of of success but to me when something becomes so big that there are parodies of it is when like you've crossed another line i remember 
I don't know if you've seen, you know, Mr. Show had a sketch in like 1995 called Recruiters, which was clearly, you know, referencing hoop dreams about them trying to like recruit preschoolers instead though. And it's you just- know, Yeah, it's funny. I have not seen that. My my older oldest son is a big fan of Mr. Show and I've seen some of those episodes. So it's a pretty out there show, but I've not seen that episode. I need to look that up. I'm sure I can find it online. I, I infor- I'll tell you, like, cause I have them all, I have all them on DVD cause I'm one of those freaks too. But okay. last night I'm like, oh, I'm getting ready. We're getting ready to do this. Let me go revisit it. It's impossible to find, on, unless you have HBO Max, because it streams on HBO Max. But okay. elsewhere, you cannot find that episode or that sketch streaming, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm surprised okay. it's actually still on HBO Max, to be honest. Uh, you know, I guess they got lucky. <laughs> Bob yeah. Odenkirk is big enough now where they don't want to piss him off. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. Now, I was reading that there was like a 10 hour and a six hour cut because of all the, all the footage that was there. And then obviously it had to be distilled down to the almost three hour cut that we have in the years that have passed. And because of the success of the film, has there ever been any talk about restoring a longer cut or turning it into a mini series? No, uh, no, there, there wasn't that there, there, there was an initial very shaggy cut that was more like six hours. Um, and then I would say the first really sort of seriously shaped cut was four. And then it found its way to three. We did through Criterion, I went back and found a bunch of scenes from the four hour cut uh, that should be on the Criterion DVD for the Blu-ray of Hoop Dreams. Um, so if you're looking for a bit more content, um, <clears throat> it's there. And that was fun to go back and find that because it literally was like going into the production company warehouse and looking through boxes for essentially for VHS tapes of earlier cuts because we edited the film on VHS oh, yeah, offline sure. because Avid, was just coming into being and could not handle more than a TV commercial's worth of footage at that time. And so we edited it on a on a VHS offline system. And so all of the editings, you know, versions exist on a VHS cassette. <laughs> See, um, now, now I'm really set, upset we didn't get to do this interview earlier in the month because we could have tied you into the Barnes & Noble Criterion sale we could have bumped up hoop dream sales and then who knows Damn. where we could have went with this. Yeah. Well, anyway, I did find some really great scenes that didn't make it into the film that, um, that are on, that are there. You can watch. It's probably about, I don't know, 20 minutes worth of stuff. So. This is going to sound wrong for me to say, I, I think. And now I want to hear it. Well, cause look, you, you know, as a documentary, as a documentary filmmaker, you know, you're going to you're going to present what you have. It's not like you're going to falsify your findings and, and, and portray something that's not there. But in certain ways, it's not like you're hoping. Look, if there was if there was a happy ending where both of them made the NBA and both of them became stars, that's great, too. But is there a more significant importance by the fact that you it came to the point where, you know, whether it's Williams injury or whatever, you know, it may have not been that maybe it was something like he just didn't he just didn't fly in the NBA. He made it, let's say. Right that the fact that they didn't make it makes it that more potent and important. Yeah, well, um, 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's true, you know, we, in order to know whether they would have, would or would not have made it to the NBA, we were going to have to, um, we would have had to have followed them for another four years, right? Mm-hmm. So the the best that could have happened in Hoop Dreams at the time would have been for them to become big college stars, I guess, by the time it came out. And that would have given it some, and then maybe, you know, they, and then if they had pro careers, it would be, here's Hoop Dreams, the story. You want to see William Gates's story way back when, you know? So, yeah, I mean, but I think that, I think that, um, I think that part of Hoop Dreams staying power to get to your point is the fact that their experience was, was the experience that the vast majority of young men who have that dream will have, which is they will pursue it with all their hearts and souls and it won't work out (laughs) Um, one way or the other. And, you know, if William hadn't been hurt, I think he legitimately might've ended up in the NBA because he was that good. Um, But, you know, such is fate. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that that's part of its appeal. And I think it's part of what drives parents with young basketball players I know this is true to have their sons watch hoop dreams now is because they want them to, to get a reality check as well uh, on this dream. They don't, it's not like they want them to give up the dream, but they want them to have a reality check on, on just how hard it is. We're going to have to let you go now though, but before we leave one quick thing, I forgot to mention when we were talking about a compassionate spy is, and it's, it's completely frivolous in a lot of ways, but just based on that one picture you threw up of Joan on the screen, the actress you got to play Joan was dead ringer. Yeah. That was insane. No, it's great. I thank you for that. Um, I, I felt like as soon as I saw her, it was like, oh my God, that's Joan. And um, and and the actor who played Ted was, wasn't bad either. Um, and it was one of the reasons why we wanted uh, we decided to kind of go for it and and not just have them be shadowy presences in the reenactments or behind their head all the time or out of focus all mm. the time to to really just go for it because I felt like they were both a good um, you know good representation of of our, of our two our, of our couple. Steve, thanks wow. so much for your time. Yes, and uh, I would just like to throw out an open invite for you to come back and talk about life itself. I'm just gonna okay. put that out there right now. And, and we'll do Prefontaine, we'll do a whole bunch of them. Yeah, <laughs> come back anytime, Actually, okay? Prefontaine's a good one too, because it's one of those cases where it's like Hollywood decided to make two of the same movies at the same time. Oh yeah. That's a whole other discussion. <laughs> kind of a crazy story, that one, so. Ooh, okay. We'll, we'll do that. <laughs> Have a good Sounds one. Sounds good. Thank you, guys. Thanks for this. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Steve James, for your time. Thank you for being with us. I'm not going to skip over talking about A Compassionate Spy. But because here's, I remember getting the invite, again, to see A Compassionate Spy and like, are you going to have director Steve James? And like, I, I know Steve, I, I knew what he made, but I wasn't putting two and two together when I first got the invite. And then I finally looked at it a little more in depth and like opened my mind to remember who, who he was. And I'm like, oh my God, Hoop Dreams to me is another one of those perfect overdue rentals examples. 
because you could not escape Hoop Dreams when Hoop Dreams first came out. And it is still important and big and people talk about it, but not the everyday public. And even again, as I know a lot of kids who are probably going into wanting to play basketball, probably see it. There's a, lot, there's a whole other p- group of people who haven't seen it. So I was like so thrilled to be able to get Steve on here to talk to us about both of these movies. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 like you had touched upon earlier, for a documentary film to make that much, especially with with an Academy Award, well, with a nomination for editing, but for a documentary film to make that much of a splash with the public, it's either it's been nominated like for everything out the wazoo and it's just catching people's minds or it's something that really resonates with people. And this was, uh, what, what year was this again? 94, I want to say. 94, like this is prime Chicago Bulls dream team, like basketball fever. Well, you know, it's funny. And I, I, I apologize. I, like, I don't want to go back and forth, but I feel we should just talk about a capacious buy for a quick second because I have a note that I want to make on what you just said. Oh. But what I want to say, you know, and we won't hop on, on Capacious by too much because I do think it's something that people should experience more. Again, tr- not knowing. Yes. Not knowing. Yes. Like, Just natural. Yeah. Like- but it's weird because, again, you can't pinpoint specifically. But it's weird after, again, seeing it after seeing an Oppenheimer and thinking about the AEC meeting and thinking is like, they're probably talking about Ted. But but since Ted's not in the movie, we're not talking about Ted. Should just do like they did in Winnie the Pooh with like Gopher, where like Ted just pops. I was like, I'm not in the movie. <laughs> that would be very strange, but it would be it would be funny. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just it, it's funny because minor diversion. But when I went to see Oppenheimer, people were obviously talking about uh, Oppenheimer and Barbie. Like people had screened Barbie a couple of days before, so we went and saw Oppenheimer. And some are like, "Well, this isn't really a uh, a franchise starter." And I looked at them and I said, "Excuse me, the sequel's called Doctor Strange Love." That's just a, look. I have two things to say. A, that's very that's like that's like the comment I heard. I went. Why I saw Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind on release day when it came out back in whatever nine two thousand nineteen ninety nine or whatever it was two thousand four I think or two thousand three. No. No. Mm-hmm. Was it really that late? I'm looking, we're typing people. 2004. Wow. Anyway, saw it on opening day. It does feel like a 99 movie though, let's be honest. But I saw it on opening day with my friends and theater was packed and I went to the bathroom and I heard some guy talking to his buddy. So I'm like, oh, what'd you think? It's like, ah, it wasn't that funny. Like he expected because Jim Carrey's in it, it had to be funny. And I'm like, my mom, I was yeah. like, the comments that come out of people sometimes, but that's the other thing. Again, not trying to get too far off the track about a compassionate spy and hoop dreams and, and everything we have to talk about with Steve, but you hear about the phenomenon of Barbenheimer, you know, but through the internet and all this stuff. But I do have to say, this is the first time in a long time. I went to the I was I was heading to the theater for the pre-screening for the press screening of Haunted Mansion. And so it's a Monday night. And it was a goddamn madhouse in the theater. And I have not seen it like that. Really? I have not seen it like that in over 20 years, I don't think. Like the, the Oh yeah, oh yeah. I was I was gonna I thought it was from Haunted Mansion. No, it was for Barbara. No, 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 because it was a press screening. I'm talking about the people who were there for other theaters to watch Oppenheimer and Barbie. Yeah. It was I have not seen that in so goddamn long. Like the the talk about it, even though it's, it may seem silly sometimes now at this point, it's fucking real, man. Like that yeah. is insane. The things I saw, which I have not witnessed in forever. 
it's a beautiful thing. And I love that it's done that. Also, both films are just, I enjoyed both films very much. Uh, I obviously favor one over the other, but I did enjoy both of them a lot. Well, which, and, one, which one do you favor? Uh, I'll let you guess on that. Uh, Oppenheimer. Obviously. Okay. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe you saw Barbie. Barbie's good. Barbie is good. In fact, I got I got more out of it the second time out. But Oppenheimer, I was locked in day one, and I need to go see this again. I need to see it in this IMAX 70 millimeter because our screening got derailed because they couldn't get the print to work. So they okay, had to switch I, to digital. I don't want, again, we were already derailed. I don't want to derail too much. But since this is the first time you and I have actually talked about this, and I will say, because first of all, my my thoughts on Oppenheimer in general are just like, yeah, you know, it's fine. I, I'm fine with it. I'm not I'm not thrilled with it. I didn't think it was some amazing piece of work. But we did. We saw the IMAX 70 millimeter for our press screening, and they got it to work. But whoever ran that projection, a obviously was not ready to do it because the whole throughout the whole movie, like hair was like building up in the gate the entire time, and you could see them clearing it out. But at one point, they obviously were not paying attention to the point where, like, in the middle of the movie. No joke. And I said this in my review. I have a video review. You can go watch it. Somebody like shaved somebody's pubes off and just threw it inside the projector. And he left it like that for like 10 minutes. And there's just fucking curly little hairs all over the goddamn thing. But That's, yeah. Also, my issue, again, also, especially with the way Christopher Nolan likes to make certain montage type scenes, where he's always got a speech going over quick changing visuals, is that I'm watching a movie where it's IMAX. Widescreen, IMAX, widescreen, but for some reason it's dropped one third down the screen, the top of the screen's black bar, and then it's back to IMAX. And it's just like, keeps switching back and forth. And I'm like, it's too much. It's just too much. But I'm going to leave it at that. We're going to, we're going to move on. Compassionate Spy, while I would like to talk about it more in depth, I do think is something that people should see without knowing all the specifics. And at least Compassionate Spy doesn't have to worry about hair in the gate or- And changing aspect ratios. Respect ratios. But I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm still looking forward to going to try to see that. But yeah. Well, find a way because as soon as it's going to be done, right? I think like all the, the, the bookings of the theaters are booked out or somehow. I, they are pretty booked out. And the thing is the third, I'm hoping they extend it again. Because I don't know if IMAX theaters are going to want to switch to Blue Beetle when Oppenheimer will obviously still sell out. Like, mm -hmm. it's just like they're talking about how Dune 2 is pushing the Marvels out of IMAX. And it's like, well, yeah, because they say it's filmed for IMAX. And plus, it did so well the first time around. Yeah, film for IMAX. Again, it's the same thing with Oppenheimer. And every time Christopher Nolan was, and even, no, I mean, no, I didn't no, see no, but IMAX. What? Well, you don't even know what I'm going to say. was shot on IMAX film. Dune was filmed digitally. No, 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 no. Was, no, you're, shot, for, was shot for IMAX versus film. I, I, I understand all that, but that's not my point. My point is, is that the IMAX format, you're still only getting clips of it in five, not even five minute clips. It's just, you only get that format under certain shots. And then it's not that format for the whole, it's not like you're not watching an IMAX format the entire movie. So it's pointless to me. That's my point. I'm gonna let the internet judge you for a minute here. Well, it's that's 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 a fact. That's not a that's not a personal opinion. It's a fact. It's not you're not watching an entire movie just in IMAX in that format. The aspect ratio keeps changing, and that 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 official IMAX ratio is only there on the screen in blips at a time. So a compassionate spy. 
Sorry. Getting hot out of the collar, you people. Or hoop dreams. Take your pick. Well, compassionate spy again. You know, we we got into it and talking to it about Steve, but like, I feel that also for people who may know about it, or even if they don't, as they understand what it's about, which doesn't take very long. It's like it's fairly obvious from the get go once you start watching it. Like I. I think there are certain people who are going to probably sit down and watch it thinking that like, this is a movie trying to back everything he did. And that's not what it is. Um, but I, I, but that is my one fear. I think there are people who will like think that it's like, this is trying to uh, say everything he did was okay. And uh, you should, uh-huh. that you should believe that, which it's technically not the case. No, I mean, this is a very even-handed portrait where they, like uh, like Steve was telling us, they bring in other people that are uh, very much of the the very opposite of that spectrum, right down to, uh, I forget who it was, but the one arm, the one figure from the army who's like, no, he should be brought back in the army. He should be, should have been court-martialed and summarily executed. Like, if you're really trying to paint this man just totally... A100, you don't include that because there's that resonates with a lot of people. Yeah, but it's not, it's again, it's not even, it's not, and it's because it's not even about trying to, again, justify or not justify the actual action. It's trying to justify or again, maybe not justify the thought process to why somebody would do that. Um, and what, you know, and, and the, you know, being a compassionate spy, being, you know, like it's clear you know, from, from his motivations, you know, he was doing it out of a source of concern and worry um, compared to, you know, like, oh, well, I'm trying to help my uh, comrades or whatever it may be. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it, that's the same with any documentary. There's always the aim of trying to keep things centered. Obviously there's going to be one side or the other that does prevail because that's just subjectivity and edit that subjectivity and in, in, in content but at the same time no one wants it to look too heavy-handed on either side well that's what that's where like you know like i think a lot of people get confused with i think a documentary is supposed to be fact 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 giving you this idea and but a great documentary just like any other movie or book or or a piece of music or like that it doesn't have to be but should give yeah. you an ambiguous feeling of trying to find out where you, where you stand on this, which is why I, which is again, this is why I specifically asked where the origins of Hoop Dreams came from and compared to like, maybe it started off as a recruiter's thing. And then as you chanced along these two kids, it's like, oh, well, ooh, that's a more interesting story because my favorite anecdote of all time is, is that, and I'm not trying to take anything away from Andrew Jarecki. And for people who don't know who Andrew Jarecki is, he was one of the, uh, two people who started Movie Phone, which doesn't exist anymore. It well exists as an online faction, but like back in the day, it was like you call to find out what time your movie's playing. And he took that money and he wanted to make a documentary about party clowns, people who were hired in New York to go do uh, to act as a clowns for kids parties. Yeah. And at, in doing this, he heard the the, the number one person who's hired as as a, as a party clown. He heard like the story of his family. And he's like, all right, I'm making that film instead. And that film was capturing the Freemans. Yes, I remember hearing that. And then this man <laughs> locks into another documentary because he makes a fictional, based on true story uh, movie about uh, starring Ryan Gosling and, and, and Kirsten Dunst about uh, Robert Durst's oh, life. Durst. 
And then Robert Durst calls him and goes, let's let's talk about this. And then he gets another great opportunity. So these things technically in some, like, but the thing is, the man knows how to put the movie together. It's not, I'm not trying to take away from his talent of doing that, but he lucked in to two of the most crazy stories <laughs> in documentary history. And both of them, I mean, Crouch and the Freeman's more so than uh, the Jinx. You know, Catching the Freemans is, is my go-to to always talk about people. It's like, granted, you know, he he wants to support uh, Jesse and the idea that he doesn't believe Jesse was involved in anything. You know, his father obviously was, had owned child porn, did all this other stuff, but he's not trying to try and make you take sides. He's trying to show you that like, one minute, this is so ridiculous, you can't believe it. And the next minute, it's like, oh, no, this is obviously true. And that's what, like, it's something like Compassionate Spy also does. And, you know, it's, you know, this idea where it's like, Here's the story. And it's like, how do you view it? And I'm I'm ranting now, and I don't even know where I went. I don't know where I started with this. I'm ranting. Save me. <laughs> Capturing the Freedmans. No, but that is that really is amazing how documentaries just turn into one that they can really shift depending on what you get out of it. And when you really think it's gonna end, like you. It, it, I, I just would love to, maybe we should have asked Steve more about it. It's just how often do, that not does it happen where you have an idea for a documentary and it's like, yes, I'm going for this. This is happening. And then it just does turn into, into a capturing the Freedmans and where it's like, oh, okay. So I was thinking about this, but instead we're just going to do this and I'm going to dig more into this because there's clearly more over here than there is over there. It, it, and that's, you know, we didn't necessarily directly ask it, but that's, you know, as he talked about with Hoop Dreams, it's like it started off with the playground idea and the two kids. And then from where it went from there, it depended on what they were going to end up doing. And, you know, that movie, like, because again, I'm, I'm not trying to bring ill willing, but I, you know, I didn't want to see William and Arthur, you know, fail uh, and becoming into the NBA, that is. But that's why I asked that question, because I feel that the movie's all that more important because they didn't make it. Yeah, I mean, that's, look, it's just like nature documentaries. It's the same thing where it's like you want, no one wants to see an animal die. No one wants to see the grim spectacle of nature per se, but it reminds us of what, but that's that's a documentary. It's supposed to remind yeah. us of real life. It's not some sort of idealized portrait that lionizes and sugarcoats anything. It's like, no, this is what happens. But that's also the thing with that's the thing also with hoop dreams, I think, because you know, both of them were behind their their school levels of where they should be at that time when they were in there. And they show you that you know William excelled a little bit more when he when he went to it. Author had time had a hard time connecting, but it's very much the same kind of thing where when people like first see the wire, let's say, where it's like they have these preconceived notions of what an inner city child is supposed to be like. But both of these kids, whether or not book smart was there. They were both whip smart. And even though Arthur may be a little shyer and not as, um, you know, open at certain times, you could tell how advanced they were in some ways as people are compared to, you know, John and Mary down the street or whatever it may be. It's like, it's such an interesting thing to see. And that's where you, again, you get lucky in having like these subjects that all of a sudden, I'm not saying necessarily fall into your lap, but fall into your lap. Yeah. No, it's that's you really that that's not something that narrative filmmaking can really look into unless it's one of those stories like Star Wars where, oh, they found that movie in the edit. 
or I've, I've been reading through Martin Brest's uh, comments about Beverly Hills Cop in a recent Variety interview and how that was originally supposed to be a Stallone vehicle, but then Stallone wanted to do something more like Cobra and dropped out to do Cobra. And then Eddie Murphy's all of a sudden a candidate. And once they got him on there, it basically changed the tone of that movie into something that blew up. Like that's basically the equivalent of looking into these sorts of things, but that doesn't always happen and it doesn't always work like that. Yeah, and and look, to also go back to your point about wondering about the six, 10 hour edit of Hoop Dreams, you know, again, it's not all about Hoop Dreams and it's not all about them, but uh, William and Arthur, as of two years ago, do host Hoop Dreams, the podcast. And you can actually go, and they also have an Instagram, which is um, the AG and Gates podcast, OG Hoop Dreams. Um, you know, so the two of them have started up a podcast about professional sports and, and all this other stuff. And so there's probably a lot more insight to get out there too. If you want to watch Hoop Dreams and I get more information, you can go check out their podcast. It'd be really nice if we could get them on as guests, perhaps. It would be really nice. I, I also like, I'm not trying to now be a downer, but you know, again, in preparing and looking at things, I went and looked at their, their Wikipedia pages and both author's father and William's brother ended up dying in these horrific, you know, circumstances. Uh, not at the exact same time, but like not too far apart in, in, in other ways. And it's just insane to like be bought into somebody's life to a certain point by a viewer and then come back out and go like, I don't know them well enough to know if I feel about them a certain way, but then just see what happened. Just go like, I can't fucking believe it. Just can't fucking believe it. No, I mean, that's, that, that's something else that, again, tying it back to the subject of documentaries, it's always very interesting to sort of measure, especially when they're contemporary documentaries, where it's like going back and seeing what happened afterwards. And just yeah. sort of, it, 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 you remember, it's like you, you have fond memories of those people through hoop, like through hoop dreams, you have fond memories of these people. And then to reconcile it with that, that very real pain is it's it's bittersweet because the, there's this record of them at this really big time and as as wonderful as it looks you know it always kind of ends up with the reality coming cra- sort of crashing back down on you and you know to, to not necessarily also focus on the darker sides of these things too what i think is great about hoop dreams specifically is that again for a lengthy film especially at the time when people maybe it's like oh, a three-hour documentary what the hell like that thing hooks you in the first 10 minutes when you see arthur get on the court with isaiah thomas at the beginning and you see his smile and you see him just do that the quick drill with him and you're like okay what's gonna happen now and it's just like right open it's this great way to like to like get that early on in your film to, to draw people in yeah and again, you know, it's just, this is that documentary filmmaking that lands you in the Criterion Collection where you can pick 20 minutes more from that extra footage that was in there. And just, I, if we had more time, I would have loved to ask him about assembling the Criterion for this. We'll get, we'll get him back. We, we, like we said, we'll get him back and, you know, we'll throw in a few extra Hoop Dreams questions that we forgot about or couldn't fit in due to time. Yeah. But um, yeah, the, the Hoop Dreams is, again, as I said earlier, a great example of an overdue rental. It's like a perfect example of, of it, but it's also like a perfect example of one that is still so important to so many people. And it's not just like a cult classic kind of thing. Like it does hold weight to certain people in certain in circles. Um, 
So it's not like it's gone away and disappeared, but you know, you go look at, you know, the lists of, you know, famous documentaries. It doesn't, it makes it like if somebody's going to do top 25 documentaries of all times, Hoop Dreams is on the list. You know, it's, it's always going to be there. But when it came out, it was like, it was a revolution. It was like, if you made that list then, it, it was going to top everybody's list. Like it didn't make a difference about Nanook of the North or, 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 you know, Thin Blue Line, which was a revelation at the time because it was the first time that anybody tried to weave in like the fictionalized story kind of version of something, you know? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of great examples. That's the problem. I, I, I'd fall out. But Hoop Dreams was so important, is so important, uh, that it is the perfect overdue rental, which is why now you should go. Luckily, Hoop Dreams also, if you if you can't go buy your Criterion Edition right now, is available through a lot of streaming sites to watch. Uh, I, I rewatched it on Tubi. Tubi! Um, and then the Cash Passion of Spy is going to be available on, on August 4th, on Friday, August 4th, for everybody to DOC. So make sure you can do that too. Then and come the back. Others- in theaters, and I think it's gonna be—is it on theaters and on demand the same day? I don't I actually forget. Let me look this up, everybody, so feature. I don't tell you lies, tell you sweet little lies. Make it a double feature, folks. It's you know Barbenheimer. You still triple still feature. Do Barbenheimer. I'm gonna do Barbenheimer. Yeah. Oh well, well there you go. But then, oof. I guess you would do Compassionate Spy last and- because it would be Oppenheimer for the horror. Barbie brings you back up and then Compassionate Spy sort of lands you on an even keel. I'm going to say something. Well, first of all, it is available in theaters and VOD on the same day, this Friday, August 4th. It is, that I, I was not lying. And I, I didn't do a Barbenheimer thing, so I, I don't know. I haven't done it yet either, but I'm still aiming but to. I would imagine if that's the case that maybe you do do it, Oppenheimer first, Barbie for your palate cleanser, then a Compassionate Spy, like almost you forgot about it. And it's like, oh shit, I'm back again. Yeah, only this time it's like it, it, it's that more even sort of keel where it's not as tortured, but still still tortured. But look, we really don't want to spoil this movie for you all. Just go see a compassionate spy. Yes. Go watch it. And then cross Hoop Dreams off your overdue rentals list. Come back, let us know what you thought. But of course, you may not know how to let us know. So Mike, how can people find us? There's a lot of different ways you can talk to us because the internet is as vast as Oppenheimer is long, but in a good way. And as such... You want to get a hold of us, we're at TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show, on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals. And if you would like to email us your rental lists, love letters, suggestions on other documentaries you'd like us to talk about, or any other movie in general, email us at overduerentals at gmail.com. But while you're on the internet, and while, again, it is vast, it has a lot of different ways that you can enjoy our show from the past as well as the future. You can find us wherever you ethically source your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify. Oh, wait, does Anchor, Anchor still exist, right? Well, no, Anchor is based Spotify podcasting is now Anchor. Oh, Anchor right, is now Spotify right, right. podcasting. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible. Stitcher Basically. is going to be dead at the end of August, though. Oh, right. That's another one I'm going to, well, I don't even have that written down, but I'll just have to cross it off of my list in the mind. But wherever you ethically source your podcasts, we're there. And chances are there is going to be an option for you to rate, review, and subscribe to us so the rental counter can stay open. And again, we hear your thoughts on what you want. Drop us an Apple review. Drop some stars on Spotify. Like, we want to know what's going on here, people. There's also now automatically a Q&A box in your, if you are on Spotify on the podcast. So if you do have questions, thoughts, and you want to tell us about what you thought and what we said, you can do it there too. Down to the specific episode. And the best part is, we start getting things like that eh, rolling in. We're probably going to have to read them from you, our dear friends, family, and listeners. Uh, I'm going to want to read them. 
read them on the air and just, you know, we interact. We have a little bit of a dialogue. So that way, when we do the live show, whenever the live show happens, that just built, we, we built a rapport. You can come and ask more questions in person. We're like, hey, you responded on the Compassionate Spy episode. Let's talk more about your Hoop Dreams uh, review. But that's thinking way, way into the future. For now, we're just going to zoom it back down into the here and now and give you a fond and firm bye-bye. Yeah.